square fielder. He's gone to the dogs. Welcome, friends, to the Gone to the Dogs podcast. One more episode coming at you this morning. And uh, really excited about today's program. We've got a fellow that I've intended to connect with for a a good long while. And finally, uh, we made the connection. Uh, That's Mr. Robert Raxter from Brevard, North Carolina. And he's already on the line. Robert, how are you this morning? I'm doing great this morning. Steve, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing great, Robert. I really am. We had a little technical issue there early on when we tried to record, but that's nothing new for me. I usually have at least one of those (laughs) mishaps along the way. But uh, how's the weather up there in the mountains of North Carolina? Beautiful this morning. It's about uh, 60 degrees. Highs will be about 70, 72. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. I always try to get back to the mountains in the fall if I can, and uh, we usually take a little trip up that way in, in October usually so we can, you know, they call us leaf peepers, uh, <laughs> <laughs> drive yeah. around and see the scenery. There in Brevard, where you are, um, we were talking earlier about the some of the trout streams I've enjoyed there, the Davidson River being one of them. And that's a tough river to fish. They call it a technical uh, river for fly fishermen because those fish have been, I guess they've been caught so much that they're, they're uh, wise, you know, to, to all that. Do you do any f- uh, trout fishing at all? Uh, I have. In years past, but I haven't probably spent five years or so. I used to fish trout fish pretty regular. I got you. I would fly fishing, but the Davidson was always too rough. Too uh, the fish were too smart for me. Yeah, Yeah, that's what they call it. uh, These snob fly fishermen, you know, they call it a technical river. (laughs) Means you gotta. You've got to really have your your uh, game plan to fool those fish, yeah. But and I'm not that level of fly fisherman really either. But when I had I was in Raleigh working for AKC and had a little heart uh, speed bump there and had to have surgery. And while I was recovering, I started to go started going over into the mountains and uh, uh, renting a cabin and fly fishing and all that. So I. I traveled around a lot of those areas there, but uh, it's beautiful country for sure. Must have it been is. pretty rough on a coon hunter though to have to hunt those mountains. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, it wasn't too bad when I was younger, but uh, uh, age has caught up with me, and uh, it's uh, got uh, challenging to almost impossible for me now to, to hunt around here, and it's uh, a lot of. Uh, Stuff has changed over the last 30 or 40 years during my coon hunting career. Used to, yeah, used to uh, had plenty of places to hunt and uh, wasn't an issue about where to go. But now, so many people have retired and moved to Transylvania County that uh, it's uh, about impossible to get permission. And there's a lot of uh, game lands, but the games of the game lands is rough, real steep. I got you. You know, uh, down through the years, Robert, as I've gone to 
North Carolina and gone to those mountains. And, of course, my interest early on was through my dad and his love for the plot hound and bear hunting. And I would, having grown up in the mountains of West Virginia, which are rough enough, but then coming down to North Carolina and you're adding another couple thousand feet in elevation on some of those higher peaks and rugged, oh my gosh, I had to think that those fellas that hunted back in the day hunted strictly on foot and all had to be some tough outfits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, before the Garmin's came through and and uh, really no way of keeping up with your dog too well. It was I'm sure it was rough on the bear hunters, especially. Yeah, our county. Yeah, our county is uh, got a little over a mile difference in elevation from the north uh, county line to the south county line. The north line for the counties, the uh, Blue Ridge Parkway, and right. it's the highest point on the Parkway, about six thousand feet or so. Mm-hmm. And the end is uh, Lake Joe Cassie, right on the South Carolina state line, and, and it's uh, a little under a thousand feet. Wow, I didn't realize that you had that much variation in in your elevation yeah. there. Yeah. I know, uh, you know, of course, anybody that's visited the Great Smoky Mountain National Park, I'm sure, has been up on Clingman's Dome and. And uh, that's over 6,000 feet. I know, was it 6,200 something? I can't remember exactly, but but man, you just look any direction in that country and it's just, it's just amazing. Yeah, and, beautiful uh, place. It is. It's absolutely beautiful. We had a fellow we bear hunted with back in West Virginia. He was kind of a comical guy and we'd get into a real rough place and he'd say, boys, you don't want to go in there. That's the place the good Lord threw away. And, uh, <laughs> but some of that country, boy, you can stand on Clingman's Dome and look over in Tennessee and, and all over. It's, it's nope. just, uh, I don't know. It, it, the mountains, there's just something about the mountains, you know, that, that are spiritual almost. I mean, you just feel, it- yeah, you get up there, sitting up there and looking off at everything, and it'll, if it don't touch your heart, then there's still something wrong with you. Well, I think you're right, Robert. I sure do. Now, I believe you told me earlier, if you don't mind me saying, you're uh, 67 now. Is that right? Yeah, I'm 67. Where were you born, Robert? Oh, I was born in Transylvania County, Bavard. Oh, yeah. okay. So you've been right there all your, well, yeah. the guy asked me, he said, you've been a coon hunter all your life, Steve? And I said, well, not yet. <laughs> but uh, but you've been right there in Transylvania County. Yeah. Her, her uh, fractures moved into Transylvania County, got some land granted from the governor in about 1860. Wow. And, so we've been here for few years a few years i'd say now was uh, were you raised in the country or in town yeah, or what was your background yeah, raised out in the country and it, it's not so much country now but uh, when i was a kid it was uh just sort of like out in the boonies and uh yeah, yeah we had uh dogs uh you hound dogs we squirrel hunted and uh every once in a while they'd tree a coon for us their dogs yeah. ran loose 
and uh, they were just all-purpose dogs. Were they cur-type dogs? My dad got started off with cur dogs over in Middle Tennessee on the farm where he grew up. But what type of dogs were these? Well, they were they had some cur in them, but they were mixed up. Just mixed yeah. up hound. Yeah, with, yeah. yeah they, they were game catchers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just whatever happened to come through, uh, if they got mm-hmm. after it, it was old. I got you. Well, back in that day, you know, it was a utilitarian thing. You know, a dog had a job, didn't it? I mean, yes, you know, absolutely. Yeah. Didn't just keep them around to look at and feed them. Feeding them was a chore <laughs> enough, I imagine, back, back then. Well, what what are your earliest memories of coon hunting? Uh, used to go with my uncle. Now, my dad, he, uh, he, he worked all the time. He loved working. And, uh, uh, he would take time to, to fish a little bit and squirrel hunt with us a little bit once in a while. But my uncle was the first one that took us, uh, uh, coon hunting and he'd come up to our house and that's the reason he'd take us because he, he wanted us to go and sort of take him around through, uh, our country and, uh, he had red bones and mm-hmm. nothing about them, but I don't think I ever did see a coon with him. <laughs> you were going through the motions of coon hunting. We were going through the motions. He, he was one of them hunters that believed in following the dogs. I got you. I got you. Well, describe that right where you lived and where you grew up. What was the terrain like there? Oh, it's just, just mountains. I see. We so. Had- you were on a farm like there, a mountain farm, typical mountain yeah. farm with. Had about thirty acres right there, and That's dad, uh, dad was a land surveyor by trade. Okay. He uh, uh, decided he wanted to go Christmas tree, and so we had about five acres of Christmas trees. Yeah, a few heads of uh, cattle, milk, and. Uh, horses and a, a few horses and a few mules, mules and stuff. I was, see. Now, yeah. as a boy, did you have to trim those Christmas trees? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. There's a lot. Yeah. You know, people don't realize how much uh, work is and, and time is involved in the uh, Christmas tree when you go out there to grocery store or the corner market and pick one up there's a lot of work oh i imagine well i lived for a period of time before moving to florida and and right at the end of my career uh, i was working with akc but i moved over into the mountains of ash county north carolina yeah yeah yeah, i'm sure you know where that is it's right up there where virginia and north carolina and tennessee all come together but there was a lot of christmas trees up there too you know yeah yeah. Yes, sir. So That's I got beautiful. to kind of see some of that, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Well, uh, you mentioned mules. My granddad had mules. That's where he wor- how he worked his farm there in Tennessee. You know, he was legally blind. He couldn't drive a car, so he had to do everything with mules. He'd drive his mule, uh, his wag- hitch up a wagon, drive to town, you wow. know, to do his business there and. <laughs> In Dixon, Tennessee. But, uh, well, now you have uh, brothers and sisters, Roberts? I've uh, got a twin brother. Oh, and, okay. Uh, he, I'm a land surveyor by trade, 
he's a land surveyor by trade. Okay, you followed in your dad's footsteps. We did, yeah. And we got several businesses. And then I have a sister that lives in Asheville. Okay, well, that's good. That's good. I'm sure they keep you busy surveying land down there. These all these halfbackers they talk about. You know what that is? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. For our listeners, that's the people that moved to Florida from New York or wherever, and they they don't like it, and they come halfway back and settle in the mountains, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I'm sure there are other names for them, but we won't go into that. Uh, living here in Florida, I have to deal with some of those disgruntled ones before they move back. So anyway... Well, so I imagine it was a lot of fun growing up as a kid there in the mountains. And, uh, yeah, good, yeah, good childhood, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, great people, you know, hardworking people, I'm sure. Well, so you went from these uh, all-purpose dogs there. How did you progress into getting into some registered dogs? Did that come along much later? or, or was uh, Yeah, that- Quite a bit later, I uh, I started my own surveying business separate from my dad's in 1982, and uh, hmm. I hired a couple of fellers to work for me, and one of them was a gun hunter. Yeah. Uh, uh, so he wanted to to go uh, gun hunting up there at my, at my mom and dad's. He had black and tans, oh. and uh, mm-hmm. and I sort of. Really fell in love with it right there. Just and I had already, I was uh, thirty years old by then, and uh, uh, fell in love with it and decided I wanted to get my own dogs. And uh, uh, thought, you know, he was telling me how good his dog was and everything, but we hardly ever traded a coon. And uh, I went to a competition hunt with him. UKC hunting in Franklin, North Carolina, mm-hmm. and drew out. I was spectating, and he drew out with Jim McConnell. Had to- well, I was just going to ask you if you knew Jim. When you said Franklin, that's who I immediately thought of. He had a little old dog called Ugly, and uh, we went down into Georgia where they hunt all the time, mm-hmm. and Ugly treed about five or six coons, and uh, and the good black and tan hadn't made a tree yet, so <laughs> I decided it was time to start looking at other dogs. <laughs> I see those those spotted dogs started looking pretty good to you, huh? They did, yeah. Yeah. And then went and bought one and started hunting and I messed around and uh, bought, uh, bought an older female and raised a litter of puppies and, and just and she was off of, straight off of Hickory Nut, the original Hickory Nut Harry. Mm-hmm. Uh, started uh, uh, hunting and raising my own, own dogs and sort of progressed there. Well, when you mentioned Hickory Nut Harry, I always remember. I guess he would uh, would have been a would have been a, a half mate to your dog there. But you know, he produced the hardwood bozo dog. Yes, and. In my mind, um, Bozo has been one of the most influential uh, sires in the history of the Walker breed. When you look at so many of the popular lines of walkers that go back to him, you know, and I've I've mentioned those on on uh, 
this podcast before, but so your uh, yours, did you say it was a female you had out of Harry? Yes, uh-huh. yeah, she was ten years old, and uh, I bought her from uh, Harley McConnell. Yes, so, Jim Jim's brother, mm-hmm. and uh, they uh, she had she had six puppies and the the bottle feed them, but raised them all and. That's sort of where I got my start from. Then I started uh, cross crossbreeding out to Tar Heel Nitro for a oh, while. Oh yeah, Sackett Junior bred dog. Yeah, yeah. They were real, real good tree dogs, and the ones that I sort of kept was uh, good uh, trailing dogs. You know, they, mm-hmm. they combination. So I'll interrupt you right there. Is that something that you've preferred down through the years to have a, have a good trailing dog? Uh, uh, as yeah, well? yeah. Our, our coon population is not the best, and uh, sometimes uh, in a three or four hour hunt at night, you're lucky to get across one coon track. Back then, especially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, typical of what I grew up with up in yeah. in West Virginia as well. Bad in Georgia, but it's still pretty bad. Yeah, I'm sure you're anything's better than those old worked over strip jobs that I that I got started in. But uh, they tell me they got a lot of coon up there now, but it sure didn't used to be yeah, that yeah. way. Coon population's good around here now. Yeah. Well, just, uh, yeah. Down next to people's homes instead of uh, up on the mountain. Yeah, that's right. They they really they'll they're opportunists. They're going to go where they can get a handout, you know. And uh, whenever uh, ever the uh, chestnut blight hit a mm-hmm. hundred years or so ago, and it devastated our chestnuts, that was the main food crop, you know, for our wildlife in the mountains. And uh, yeah. Now, we don't have that. Our oak trees really don't produce that many good quality acorns to support a good wildlife. Well, it's it's seasonal. You know, one year you'll have a good mass crop, and the next year you won't have any, you know, according, yeah. I guess, to the late freezes and things like that in the mountains. And, and don't you think that's probably the reason? Yeah, you're right. You're, that's true. Very true. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. Well, I wrote a chapter in my book about trees. I've always, you know, if you're going to be a hunter, you got to know what you, the the your game is it feeding on, you know, and all the. And it was always fascinating to me the chestnut trees, because you know when I was a kid, you know when we go in the woods, you, you going around an old homestead or something, you'd see a lot of split rail fences made out of chestnut. You oh know? yeah. And and we would still, back in, in that day, uh, dogs would tree in these old chestnut snags. Yeah, old snags, I sure do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Some of them you could actually just push them over, you know. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that was a terrible thing, and I guess Mother Nature knows what she's doing, but those trees, you know, were just totally devastated and wiped out. Uh, but at one time... Those mountains were absolutely full of them, you know. And, yeah. yeah, they could support a ton of stuff. Oh, yeah, chestnuts. absolutely. The, the mountain depended on the chestnuts a lot, too, for their food source, actually. Mm. 
Yeah. I'm I'm sure. Well, my dad got some uh, chestnuts and planted them in the backyard. Now, these, I don't believe they were Chinese chestnuts. Somehow, I, I guess they were still the old original, maybe. But I remember the way he planted them. He said, now, he showed me. My dad was always teaching me and showing me things. He said, now, you just take these and just push them with your thumb just down under the soil there and cover them over with some leaves. And I remember him doing that, and he had a couple of chestnut trees in the backyard awesome. that he had grown that way. But now I can't tell you for sure whether they were imported chestnuts or really the old original. I, I, yeah. I'm thinking that, that they might have been, but I, I don't know whether it's possible to grow chestnut if that blight is still, you know, uh, in the soil or whatever. But anyway, we kind of ran a rabbit path there about the chestnut trees, but that was a very important source of food for all all kinds of game in the mountains. Yeah. yeah. But I think the Midwestern hunters don't realize how much we in the mountains depend on that mass crop, you know, because we don't have those big corn fields and and uh, river bottoms and all like they have out west, or in the mi- Midwest, you know. Yeah. Unless they, it's hard for them to comprehend the challenges that you face in the mountain. Oh, yeah. And you've got to be tough, and you've got to be able to climb those. My dad used to call them as steep as a cow's face, he'd say. Yep. And uh, But it if you love it and you love a tree dog, I guess you you, you play the hand you're dealt, and you go, <laughs> go ahead. And you're, and it's, uh, when a dog's straight up on top of a mountain or across a mountain, across a big holler in the next mountain over it's not quite so bad if they're walking around in the daytime trying to work or something it'd be terrible <laughs> <laughs> yeah it all depends on what you're doing out there in the mountains i guess right yeah. well now robert you got the reputation of being a good dog man a good houndsman a good trainer uh where did you, you know, what? Let's talk about that a little bit. Starting pups and all of that. When did you kind of get into that? Yeah, well, I've always enjoyed raising puppies, and uh, uh, where I have been for the last twenty-five years, I bought a place back. I have, I literally have no neighbors. Probably mm. three miles is the closest neighbor that I have. And I'm right next to the South Carolina state line and watershed that supports Greenville, South Carolina. And, and what surrounds me is a state park. And I've got land just sort of out, like a little island out, not in the middle of it, but out. I got you. And uh, my dogs run loose. Uh, my puppies run loose. Squirrel dogs run loose all the time. But I would uh, just get a puppy that I thought would have the potential of making a good one uh, bred and I always try to get well bred dogs and the reason why is because if I ever decided to sell them then they might demand a little more money sure well um, that's just practical thinking there and uh, especially in today's market for hounds I always felt that 
coonhound puppies were underpriced because of what you go through to raise a good puppy, and uh, including stud fees at times and transportation yep. and everything else. And you know those two and three hundred dollar pups. When you look out here and then your neighbor buys a poodle for twenty five hundred or three grand <laughs> or whatever, you know oh, yeah. something's wrong with that picture. You know. Uh, yeah, I agree with. <laughs> but the prices have I, I bought a. We've been trying here lately to come up with a good young Walker dog, and I they're not cheap, <laughs> but they shouldn't be cheap either. I I don't think. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a different world out there. That's for, for sure. sure. Well, um, if I can, you know, just kind of. Uh, steal a little bit of your uh, experience how do you f- basically start a pup well what do you like to do with a with a nice bred young pup i'd let it run loose because i um had a few country, uh, all that country and if they had anything in them they'd pretty much start you know. and uh i would uh just watch them and uh whenever they uh got to get treed or got to get gone, uh, then I would uh, uh, time up and start working with them. And I personally like to let them get a little age on them. You know, I, I didn't really want them to start treeing when they were six and seven months old, really. I wanted them to start when it was closer to nine because it seemed like they made the better dogs and they matured a little bit more. And uh, by letting them run loose, I really didn't have a whole lot of time and money invested in them, right? Other need, and then I could, uh, I could look at, and I didn't keep just one. I was pretty bad about keeping four or five running mm-hmm. loose at, the time. and uh, then I could sort of pick what I wanted from uh, yeah. watching them, seeing what they were doing, how they, how they were progressing. Well, I think you know I've got a partner, a, a young fellow that's just loves coon hunting and uh, goes about every night and he's got a good dog right now that he started himself didn't use any other dog to train him or anything like that but but being like most young people and i don't think he'll mind me telling you you know he's a little impatient uh, with these young dogs and and i guess i i maybe uh have been that way at times but back over the years when I was starting my own dogs and raising my own litters, you know, I didn't get too excited about, uh, you know, doing anything with them till they were all getting on up between, like you say, nine, ten, up to a year old, you know, somewhere in that neighborhood. But, uh, well, is there anything particularly that you look for in a pup? Uh, good mouth. You like a good mouth on them. If I don't have a good mouth, then I will not mess with it. And uh, That's a and good look, place to start, yeah. Yeah, and then just a head full of seed. Mm-hmm. My, a lot of people probably say that I'm ruining my health dog, but I let them come in. The house. A lot of them will sleep in the house and socialize with being socialized with every other dog. I've got and I've got one uh, one feed bowl sitting on the porch, and they all eat together. They all sleep together, and uh, uh, hmm. a lot of people think they need to be 
told him about herself the whole time, but they, they learned to, uh, uh, or not communicate and learn to how to socialize with other dogs. I think, in my opinion, that's just as important as uh, uh, being able to get out there and drink up. They got to make it whatever comes their way and not be scared to death or wondering what's going on. Well, I'm, gl- I'm glad to hear you say that. You know, I've found that raising dogs, and it's been more necessity with me, the way I've worked over the years and traveled a lot and all, and I've, I've basically had to have keep my dogs fairly close. You know, and uh, and in a controlled environment. But I found when I started bringing them in the house, it seemed like, man, uh, they just learn so much quicker. They learn what you want out of them and all, you know. I think that's, I think that was my keys was my dogs. I socialized with them so much and connected with them so much that they felt like they had to, they tried to play. Mm. They felt. Well, absolutely, and I agree with you, couldn't agree with you more on that, uh, Robert, and uh, I think, you know, we, we look at these pups nowadays, and I, I'm looking at Coonhounds from a whole different angle than I used to because I didn't used to worry about some of the things that are causing me heartburn now. You know, I just took a well-bred pup, bred the best that we knew how to breed them, and then, you know, um, introduced them to some game, and, you know, all yeah. might show them. A, do, you, do you show a pup a cage coon or anything like that? As, I, I will one about one time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's it. And uh, uh, most of the time, you know, sometimes it takes a time or two. Or, but generally, I, I'll do it one time and just sort of get it going. If I see that it's uh, on a tree, something, then then I will put a feeder out. Uh huh. So able to be able to have a good track right there, pretty close without having to do much. And uh, and then uh, then I will absolutely hunt the wheels off of it, or used to. So yeah. I, I don't yeah. Well, I I understand. You and I both are kind of. Talking from uh, experience more than present day <laughs> activity, I think. But hey, that's you know, so many uh, younger fellows getting into the sport nowadays um, that don't know these things, you know, and they have questions about it. And that's why yeah. it's always it's great to have you on board here and and guys like you uh, that can relate, you know, the way we ought to really go about it. I think so many times the younger hunters get so impatient. They read the hype. They see that the, the dogs on Facebook or whatever, they're training coons at six months old. And yeah. they think they all need to be that way. And yeah. Uh, Patience, you know, is uh, the old saying is a guy said, I pray for patience and I want it right now. You know, um, <laughs> it uh, it doesn't work that way, does it? That was, uh, yeah. Mm. yeah, I've had a lot of people tell me, oh, I'm, I'm going to give him until he's nine months old. If he ain't trained by then, I'm going to get rid of him, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Sometimes that's the right choice, but a lot of times it's not. 
Do you That's, remember a particular dog that you've had down through the years? And I want to talk to you about some of the good ones you've had. But do you remember one that was kind of a late bloomer, maybe you'd about given up on and so forth, that went on to make oh, yeah. the dog? Yeah, about the probably the one that stands out the most was uh, I had a, a younger litter mate to Wesley, I think it's Wesley Sanford's Elvis dog. Right, yeah. And uh, he was bred you know, in the same litter. I got him from uh, uh, down in South Carolina. Uh, and uh, took him, you know, turned him loose, let him run loose, and he run loose till he was about nine or ten months old and really wasn't doing much. And so uh, I started messing with him a little bit with a coon and started taking him coon hunting with the other dogs. And he would just sit down and just watch them and listen. Wouldn't mm-hmm. do nothing. Just, and that went on, and he wouldn't. Want, didn't want to go hunting, didn't want to do much of nothing, so I about ready to give up on him. And this has been going on for a couple of months. And mm-hmm. uh, then one one night I was out hunting, and he just disappeared. And the next thing you know, you know he's across the hill over, and here the dog started treeing. He went over, and it, it was him. And he he wound up being a, a real real good. He was a good trail dog. Hmm. And wound up making a good tree dog. Actually, Timothy Ball wound up with him. Tried to tried to uh, uh, study him out. I got you. He didn't. Uh, he didn't make it too far. <laughs> Timothy stud pin. <laughs> well, you know. Those stories are out there. You know, I had Lee Logan from Pennsylvania on the podcast uh, a while back, and he talked about a female that he had that he just about reached the end of his rope with her, you know, and had basically decided that tonight's the night. Either you do it or or you're, you know, uh, you're not going home with me. Yeah. But, um, and sure enough, as fate would have it, I guess she did, you know, as we say, she flipped that switch. And, uh, so I, you know, those stories to me, I think the main lesson that we need to learn again about this is just be patient with these young dogs that, you know, there's no, there's really no secret formula to having a coon dog. We all want them to be naturals more than man-made. And I think yeah. the good ones pretty much are, don't you? Yes, I agree with you that. Oh, they are. Yeah, mm-hmm. you don't, if they're uh, the right kind of naturals, you just have to expose them. That's the biggest thing. Expose yeah. Them. Maybe yeah. correct a little bit here and there. Right. So. That's what I've always believed, Robert, is just let them have opportunities. Give yes. them as many opportunities as you can to let them be, you know, what God put in there. And uh, that's about all we can do. I I never put a lot of stock in a guy or, or a dog that somebody had to train to bark up and had to, you know, we use all these little tricks and gimmicks and methods and all that stuff. But if they're bred right, they're going to be natural tree dogs, I would think. And, uh, yeah. yeah, do you? Uh, right, yeah, and then uh, I think if it's some of that stuff that uh, you've probably trained them with a e collar or a, or a switch or whatever, 
one of these days, I think they'll come up and bite you in the butt. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. they bite you in the. Probably don't want it to. <laughs> yeah, those shortcuts, you know, are, and they will work sometimes. There's no doubt about it. But I think, and I don't maybe want to get into this can of worms, but a lot of these dogs today that are these deep and lonely kind of dogs are man-made that way. They're not naturally born that way. Uh, I don't know how yeah. much experience you have with these ambush-type dogs and all that. Uh, I've seen tons of them, and I've owned a few that wound up being that way. But I personally don't like that type of dog. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Enough for me, dog like that up here in the mountains to start off with. And uh, I want a dog that's... Uh, uh, actually worked up and done a little bit of trailing to to the uh, to the tree instead of just having to run through the country ninety miles an hour trying to run across a hot track or a coon. Yeah, yeah. That's not to me, but that's just me. Well, that's me too, Robert. And I know that some people would argue with us about that. The end result, you know, they want the old saying, don't tell me about the labor, just show me the baby. You know, they want the result, the results driven. And I get all that, but I, I've i coon hunted all my life because I love to listen to a hound running tree. Uh, you know, and no, I don't want him to stand on his head and, and booger bark all night, or as we old boy back in West Virginia always said, mopping and waxing in there, in the hollow, you know. But uh, but I do like that good mouth that you talked about, and I love to listen to a good hound work. And but I want him, you know, I want him when he strikes that trail track. I want him to be able to put a direction on that pretty quick and and drift yeah. on out of there on it, don't you? Yeah. I don't want him to spend an hour in the same holler and come up tree with that. Yeah. You know, I mean, but that's not for me neither. Yeah. I want to get in there. If there's a coon there uh, and it took him out of tree, it, then that's not for me. I wish he, he should, in my eyes, he should have had it tree, you know, maybe 10, 15 minutes if he's going to mess with it that long. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how or, Oh, go ahead. As the, or, I was going to say, or pick a track up and take it on across the mountain and tree him over the next holler. Mm-hmm. You bet. You bet. Well, um, these thoughts run through my mind, and if I don't grab them real quick, they're gone forever. But how much stock do you put in hunting a young dog with another dog? Or once he shows you that maybe he goes starts treeing or whatever, do you single him out at that point, or how okay. do you do that? Yeah. yeah, most of my dogs, I won't hunt them with another dog, period, hardly. Uh, I mean, I will when I'm hunting with a friend or yeah. something, or is training a dog off of a grown dog. I think that's, uh, again, my opinion only, I think that's sort of backing up because they're learning uh, what the other dog's doing, and they're not learning too much on their, by themselves. And uh, you've got to have a lot of that patience working back in right there because you go several nights and uh, nothing's going to happen. Uh, you got to be uh, patient and uh, just sort of 
sometimes you got to be smarter than the dog. Yeah, the old saying is, say it again and say it louder for those in the back. That's <laughs> That, to me, is critical right there. And I mentioned my friend up in Virginia, Keston. He's got this good young dog. He just turned two years old. And he trained this dog totally by himself without yep. any help whatsoever. And he had a lot of those nights where he was just out there walking around in the dark. You know, the pup where he wasn't doing much, he would would always go hunting. He might bounce a, a little trash or something like that. He first started, he would uh, trail a coon to a tree and just sit there and look up, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But he was he was patient. He kept he was persistent. I'll say I don't know how patient he was, but he was persistent, you know, in taking him and taking him. And first thing you know, uh, you know, he he got onto the game and he's been really a nice young dog. And that's what I just like so many of these uh, younger or new hunters uh, to to grasp, you know, that it, it doesn't happen overnight. And uh, you got to be patient with them, but you—I think that you'll be a lot more satisfied with the result if you give nature its uh, course and and let it work out with that dog, than trying to force the issue. And I, I believe yeah, you'd agree with me, wouldn't you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you'll have a ten times or hundred times better dog in the end than you will uh, by trying to force him to tree or force him to bark in a coon or force him whatever right right well robert we've talked 41 minutes we haven't mentioned booger holler mojo because i wanted to talk about the guy that made the dog and let i mean you know about your methods and your philosophy as a coon hunter and all but there's no doubt that Mojo's one of the most recognizable, you'd call him an icon in in the coon hunting sport. And you know I know that that uh, you were the guy that trained Mojo and ultimately sold him to Scott and to to JC, I guess. I'll let you t- tell that story. But uh, how did Mojo come into the picture with you? Uh, I, at the time, I was looking for a, a all grand puppy because I was sort of in that little phase there for a while. And uh, Mark Sandiford and uh, Scott, and not Scott Elliott. Uh, Elliot Schuler. Elliot Schuler, yes. Yes. <laughs> they, that are puppies, and they was off of uh, Dave's uh, stylish hammer, which was to better dogs and uh, all that cross. Okay, I think the phone missed a little bit there. Uh, again, uh, Davis's stylish Harry's Hammers, the dog you're talking about, that's what he was off of, right? Yeah, that was Mojo's daddy. And uh, they had the, the, that litter of puppies, and they were Scott, uh, Mark lives 30 miles from me just down in South Carolina. Right. And I told him I'd to get a female. I've always been a female man more than I have a male. And mm-hmm. uh, I went down there, and they was having a little trouble selling them. And uh, he said, you well, you want to uh, 
two puppies. I said, well, I believe and I was given $500 a piece for them. I can't remember exactly. I said, nah, I don't really want to two puppies. Uh, mm-hmm. but I don't really want to spend that much money. He said, well, if you'll take two puppies, I'll sell you two of them for price one. So that's what I did. You got the original BOGO right there. Yeah. (laughs) Buy one, get one. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I took them uh, them to the house and just throwed them out in the yard. And and they they were eight weeks old. uh, They did good. Everything was doing good. And and I kept watching them and watching them uh, for a couple of months. And uh, BOGO was doing a lot better acting a lot better as far as a little bit of sense and uh, really no hunting part to him yet, but just uh, had a lot more uh, intelligence than the sister did, than his sister. So I told Mark I was going to sell the female. And, uh, this was right when the Grand American was rolling up. And so uh, he said, bring her down here. said, I think I can sell her for you. So I took her down there and sold her. And I really didn't have any money in Mojo. So her for the same price as what I'd get for both of them. I got you. And then uh, uh, I just let him keep running loose. And whenever he turned about nine months old, he started to tree him. Had a house cat. That was the first thing he treated. Was a house cat. And he'd done a good job. And so I tied him up and just started hunting. And uh, he just, uh, just seemed to get a little better along this time went on and one thing I liked about him I didn't know it at the time but Mojo never treated a possum he never wow. did hmm. he never, never treated a possum in his life and, and that's uh, something wow yeah he just naturally liked a coon and he had a, a natural knack of how to hunt a coon where to go and uh, uh, mm-hmm. I just pleasure hunting him a whole lot and uh Spent a lot of time in the woods with him, and he got to hurt a lot of coons, hunting with other people, and he would sort of get off away from them, have a coon, and they'd be slick or something. Just he got impressive for his young age. And I took him to the Grand American and hunted him. Uh, I didn't make it on Friday night. I hunted him on Saturday night. Won his cast. He was fifteen months old, mm-hmm. and uh, I was uh, single at the time. And uh, I decided I was going to run the roads and uh, uh, try to get the coon hound of the year, even the UKC, just something to do more than anything. Right. Like my little dog. So I started traveling, went to Ohio, Michigan, all over, and uh, wound up uh, hunting for the. Oh, I went down to uh, Winter Classic, won, I think I won two casts down there with him so that's where you got in that triple crown race with him then triple crown won yeah. that uh, for his first year and then uh, that was in 2009 i believe right yes yeah it yeah. was yeah. yeah and uh i was hunting uh, uh in the coon hound of the year you hunted in whatever uh uh category is in and he was still just a pr dog so when mm-hmm. I'd go to big hunts, I'd draw out with just PR dogs and instead of <laughs> grand knights or night champions. And, but <laughs> that doesn't mean you didn't draw good dogs. Most uh-huh. of the time, 
you're you're real well aware of this. Most of the time, four dog cast, you've got one dog that's really competition, and other two just sort mm. of floating. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, he uh, he he did good under against Jody Jessup that was pushing a, a black dog that year. Me and him grew together several times, and I'm not as smart at handling as Jody is. He's good. <laughs> Let me tell you a little aside on that. Do you know uh, Ed Ottman, Pig Eye? Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. We were at a AKC hunt when I was with them down in Charleston, South Carolina. And I forget we put a title on that hunt. Don't remember what it was. But AKC, you know, it was when we were trying to get AKC going again after they yeah. they uh-huh. hired me and all. And there was a young fella <laughs> came in and we was i remember that uh pig eye was there uh uh in the conversation and this young man was talking and he mentioned jody <laughs> and he he said to us he said well one thing i learned when i drew him i wasn't smart enough to hunt with him <laughs> <laughs> Jody's been around. He knew the ropes. Oh, yeah. yeah, you know. So. He's sharp. He's sharp. Yeah. 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 That was my case for sure. But I, uh, I but, hadn't hunted KC. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. You go ahead. No. I hadn't hunted a whole lot of PKC up to that time. And uh, I probably had, I don't know, maybe $500 uh, handlers earning. And I decided, you know, as a trip to Sullivan for the spring super stakes would uh, just be another weekend or another trip for a week. And mm-hmm. that suited me fine. So I went up there and I didn't go until uh, Tuesday or Wednesday. I hunted three nights. Mm-hmm. So uh, first, uh, first two nights I didn't. I got beat both nights. Early round, never won a cast. And then on the third night, wound up uh, double cast wins and advanced on and uh, uh, just got good dog work. And, uh, yeah. Got lucky. And, uh, yeah, that up. was the spring uh, or his junior year, right? Yeah. Yes, it was. Yeah. 2008. Correct. Yeah. yeah I did my homework, right? Uh, <laughs> No, but that yeah, I remember that well. I I remember that because uh, you know I was I was in uh, with PKC at that time. Okay. No, no, I actually wasn't. That was after I'd moved on to AKC. That's right. I I made that switch in two thousand four, so it was after. But I do definitely remember you winning the Super Stakes there. Yeah, yeah, and uh, he had a. Like two hundred fifty dollars lifetime earnings until then. So, <laughs> well, that made a big splash then. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. real good experience. Yeah. And uh, uh, I enjoyed hunting the uh, Michigan Madness a bunch. Uh, oh yeah, that's up in my old stomping ground. That yeah, around yeah. Reading, Michigan was probably yeah. mm, maybe 80, 100 miles east of where I live, but same kind, pretty much same kind of territory. Yeah. Yeah, it was good hunting up there. That's for sure. But yeah, I'd, uh, 
Uh, I'm a type of hunter that uh, when a dog gets doing real, real good, because I've always got another young dog coming on. Uh, gets about two years old, and I've got it to where it's doing good, doing uh, like it should, in my opinion. I'm generally ready to get rid of it. I got you. Well, is that? Let me ask you this: Is that more because you just want the challenge of of taking another one? to that level or is that because you realize that the dog's probably greatest value is at that point oh, uh, the value is is important but that's not not the reason uh, another challenge that's what it is i, I just it, i love messing with young dogs and puppies mm-hmm. and i've never never had a dog that of old age a coon dog die of old age in my house <laughs> uh, always sold and uh, not like I say like it's not because of the money the money is nice but you know as good as I do there's a you're you're going backwards trying to make money coon hunting or I was anyway. yeah guy told me one time he said I'm on the way to being a PKC millionaire I said how's <laughs> that he says I spend eighty dollars on a weekend to make sixty <laughs> he's counting the 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 jackpot in with that $60 entry fee, I guess. But, yeah. Well, now, so you did well in 2008, and then you decided to go and give her another spin in 2009. Yeah, by then I sold, uh, sold him to Scott. Sold oh, okay. Of- so you'd already, uh, uh, oh, yeah. he'd already oh. changed the dresses by then. Uh, yeah. I uh, somebody that would uh, I thought would promote him and, as was nationally known and also that would hunt him you know because the dog loved to hunt I mean he, he just lived and uh, I thought Scott would hunt him do good I mean he did good with him I don't think he hunted him like he should have but uh, uh, he Scott hunted him and handled him in uh, when he was a senior at Super Stakes Right. Oh, okay. I, that part I didn't uh, uh, realize, uh, but I knew that he did win them back-to-back there. Yeah. Uh, his mm-hmm. junior and senior year. I just, I just owned half of him. And, uh, uh, God owned the other half. And that was, I sold him to him in March of uh, 09. Of 09. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So then... Uh, by later in that year is when you must have sold your interest to J.C. Ellis, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, Scott mm-hmm. uh, owned him about seven or eight months, something like that. Or me and him owned him about seven or eight months. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, I'm going to tell you the way I feel about it. And, yes, sir. Uh, I felt like uh, I wasn't being told the truth about what was going on with my dog. I see. And, uh, I made a decision to sell my other half because I just didn't like what was going on in her partnership. I got and you. Well, you know, Robert, you mentioned something here that's important, I think. And I, you're free on this podcast to say anything that you want to say because I believe you're a truthful man and you're going to tell 
things the way it is uh, from your perspective. I, I, I don't doubt that at all. But partnerships in coon hounds is a very slippery slope. It, it's, it's a difficult thing to make work. Uh, uh, yeah. Don't you agree? Oh, absolutely. Especially whenever you live four or five hundred miles, three or four hundred miles apart. Yes. Uh huh. Well, yeah. I, that's unfortunate, you know. And uh, yeah. Uh, so that I guess more than anything convinced you to uh, to sell your interest. Yes. Yeah. Well, that was, yeah. Because I I still loved old dog and uh, uh, and I had to done anything for him but I didn't want I didn't want him back just to be honest with you because uh, he was too old to suit what I wanted and I called Scott and told him I was going to sell my half and uh, told him you got two weeks to come up with a or you can buy him or I got two weeks to come up you have two weeks to come up with a uh, buyer that you want to partner with or I'm going to put him on the internet Mm -hmm. and so he uh, came up with J.C. I see. I see. Okay. Well, unfortunately, J.C. has passed on, and, and you yeah. know, and uh, but um, uh, there's no doubt about it. The dog made a name for himself. You know, I think uh, we can promote one, and and we can do this and that to draw attention to a dog. But there was no, there, there's no mistake that as a young hound to go and win the Triple Crown in UKC and to win the Super Stakes, Spring Super Stakes back to back, you know, is, uh, and to make a, I guess later on, he, maybe the next year, he made the uh, Final Four in the Senior Showdown, a truck hunt. Yep. So, you know, there's no doubt that the dog made his mark. And then I think that's continued on in, you know, on the reproductive side. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's, uh, I think he's got like 1,800 or so puppies down. His puppies are one like three quarters of a billion dollars or so. And, and uh, I looked, I, I did a little bit of homework, looked at yeah, it this yeah. time. And, uh, well, some of the information that I got on Mojo, uh, I less those people out there. They know I'm brilliant, but they don't. They know I'm not that smart. <laughs> but I will. I looked back at an article that Jerry Maul did about Mojo and on the PKC website, and and back at that time, that was back in 2014. He posted that Mojo had sired sixteen hundred and forty one pups okay. and it had earned almost 400,000 uh actually 392,534 at, at you know pup earnings and that was back in 2014 so yeah. i'm sure that's uh, that's gone up considerably you know since then yeah sure it has yeah. yeah yeah well when back in the day when you were hunting mojo how would he have ranked in your mind in your personal dogs down through the years uh, you know, alongside some of the better hounds that you've owned and, uh, and started so far. I would rank him number two behind a little female that I had. That was off of Mojo named Karma. Okay. Tell us about her. Karma was a 
out of the litter of uh, Matt Merchant's frat. I think he called her frat. Mm-hmm. Uh, dog. And, uh, Matt's a good boy. I enjoyed knowing oh, yeah. Matt and his dad. Yeah. And uh, that litter, uh, I think there's maybe uh, three or four of them that's platinum. Wow. Off of Mojo, off of Frat Mojo. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was just a little old coon tree and an old dog. He had a lot, a lot of drive about her, and uh, she would uh, uh, had the uh, ability to run a fox through the country, and you'd never know what she was running unless the because uh, she was switch lights at the uh, competition dog. <laughs> yeah, but tree, she tree possum. She wasn't like her daddy. And I, uh, and I I wound up making her a platinum champion. I wound up being the, I don't mm-hmm. remember what it was, but she was a national female leader for one year. And oh, I fin- that's great. Mm-hmm. Finished second in the spring super stakes. And I should have about two, well, I think it was like 2010. I should have or won, it, won the spring super stakes with her. But I got scratched with 30 seconds left from going back to the same tree twice. Oh, I'll be darned. Dogs will do that to you. They'll keep us humble. Oh, won't yeah. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't fault her. It was my fault. Did you time. breed her at all? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Do you have good couple. luck with her pups? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Uh, the one that the one that I kept, I bred her to uh, uh, semen. Flat Rock, uh, Thrasher, or Coma? No, I was talking, uh, uh, Steve Yance, though. Thrasher. Thrasher, yes, sir. Yes, yes sir. Mm-hmm. Thrasher, I read her to Flat Rock Thrasher, and told her the th- that had the semen off of it. That was the only litter I raised, and uh, I kept one. She was a real, real good personal dog <clears throat> she uh, had a little bit of a funny turn about her and uh, I sold her for kept her and she wasn't a good competition dog uh, the reason why cause she didn't really have a lot of hunt in her and hmm. uh, she uh, was like a house dog <laughs> it's probably my fault part of it because she liked to be around me too much she really I see. Mm-hmm. so fun well, Thrasher was one of those pups like Mojo that made a big splash in the pup programs, you know, in the Futurity and the Super Stakes back in his yeah. day. Yeah, well, try it and see what happens. Sure. Well, you never know till you try, do you? No. No. No, you no. Well, looking back over your years, you know, with with hunting uh, Robert and uh, and. Uh, you know, breeding these dogs and finishing these dogs and all. And then, like me, you know, kind of realizing, especially where you live, that those mountains are a little too steep uh, to go after it like you once did. Is is there anything uh, back uh, that you do differently or or uh, uh, maybe uh, a, a special memory that you have of, of those years? Uh, I probably wouldn't change anything. I'm a mm. person has the philosophy that uh, whatever comes up today, I do the best I can do today 
for that given situation. And if it don't turn out right, then it's not really nothing I can help. You just try to live each day to the best of my ability. Well, I think you've certainly done that. You have a lot of friends, and you have a great deal of respect among your peers out in the coon hunting world. I can tell you that because, and I don't didn't bring you on the podcast to blow you up, but I, I, you know, when I speak about you or your name comes up, it's always positive, and that's that's a mark of a man in my in my view, you know, because the record or those saying let the record show and i think yours has been an exemplary record you now are hunting squirrel dogs right squirrel dogs yes yeah. that's what, I've what you got tell us about them uh the, i've had the same little line of squirrel dogs for probably 20 years too and mm-hmm. they started out with a kimmer hybrid cur which is a, a half cur and half Cajun Feist that Robert Kimmer bred up. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, I got him from a guy down in central North Carolina. And he was uh, just a super impressive little old squirrel dog. Yeah, he probably had 400, 500 puffs himself. Everybody that, that hunted him, hunted with him, wanted a puppy. What was his, the dog's name? Uh, I just called him Jake. I, yeah. none of them, we, I, I kept his papers up, but I have not got any papers on anything now do they lean more toward the cur dog or toward the feist dog in their type uh, mine's looking more like a feist right okay. now uh-huh. yeah and, and i've really not made any outcrosses i've just sort of used the kimber theory of line break yeah yeah everything pretty tight i'm a believer yeah yeah, yeah. you like line break I do, absolutely. In fact, that's, my dad, you know, was a bear hunter for 50 yes. years plus, and we bred a line of dogs we started with back in 1960 with a hound and got together with another breeder out in Illinois named Everett Weems and found out that he started out with the same stuff that my dad did and kind of line bred on that down through the years. And I'll always regret that I wasn't able to keep that line going, but due to my work and moving around and, you know, but yeah. they were primarily bred for bear hunting, but they would tree coons. And I had good success with some in, in the hunts and all, but yeah, I'm definitely, uh, uh, there's an old breeder up in Virginia. He's, uh, uh studied genetics has a couple of degrees from virginia tech lance uh hutton and he says you know you line breed to establish uh your your you family breed to establish your line you outcross to get your outstanding individuals and if you can outcross to a family bred line then that's the icing on the cake and i think that's pretty good general information Uh, But you're saying that you really haven't outcrossed this line very much, right? Uh, I think one of the neighbors did outcross for me one time. Did that work or not? (laughs) No. No? (laughs) So you said that I better go back to the well, huh? (laughs) Yes. Well, that's good. Obviously, it's a good, strong line of dogs. Yeah. 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 One of the fellers out on the state road had a little uh little feist and he i think he 
got to one of my dogs one time. Ah, I see. I got you. Well, uh, you know, just for other guys like you and me that have enjoyed a, a long uh, we'll call it career, I guess, with dogs and all. Uh, what uh, what does it mean to get to that age and retirement age where you you know you kind of have to put the things that meant so much to you way back there, kind of on the back burner? I know I have my feelings about that. What what are yours? Yeah, I, it's not a not a good feeling. Uh, little discouraging but uh, life goes on and i tell everybody that uh, you better enjoy it while you can there's of course there's no guarantee tomorrow for anybody but uh, if you live long enough uh, you'll probably be in the same boat i'm in (laughs) well i bet that the people out there are not looking forward to it but they better be hopeful that they can reach this stage in life because the old saying is it beats the alternative doesn't it absolutely (laughs) robert it's been a great visit with you did i miss on anything that you think we should have covered in this discussion one thing i'd like to say and yeah you did a little bit but i'd like to elaborate on it it's how much uh Mojo and Alma Hunt has got me connected with us. tons and tons of friends that mean the world to me across, yeah. uh, across the United States. Well, I, I certainly know that feeling, uh, Robert, and I, you know, just by virtue of my job, I, I met so many people, so many different breeds of dogs and all that in so many different parts of the country. And I I know what you're saying there because it really is it's those friendships that mean the most, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dogs will come and go, but uh, people, uh, good people, are hard to hard to get uh, hard to do without. Hard to uh, they're just a blessing. They are for sure. I meant to ask you this one question: the booger holler name. Did you originate that? Uh, that's actually where I live. Okay, so you actually holler. live in Booger Holler. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, that's the name of that little community up in there. I won't tell you how it got its name. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, it's been pretty rough over in, in prior years. Oh, I, I imagine. Well, uh, if I ever get up that way and feel like I could tackle that Davidson River again, I'll look you up. <laughs> Please. Yeah. It'd be good to just sit down and talk with you for, I could do this for hours, but uh, actually we've been at it about an hour and 10 minutes and that's about oh. a good size. A good length for a podcast, but I, I deeply appreciate you coming on with me today, Robert. Well, uh, it's been great, and I think we've, uh, we've, you've left a lot of good information for hunters, especially the younger hunters, and I appreciate that. And uh, uh, maybe someday, uh, you know, uh, in your squirrel dogs, I hope that you continue to enjoy them and. And that you can have a long, uh, fruitful career with them, like you have with your uh, 
with your coon dogs. But uh, well, Steve, thank you. I appreciate it. I want to tell you I appreciate everything that you've done for the coon hound world, and uh, uh, you're doing a great job. And look me up whenever you get a chance. Well, I sure will, Robert. I can't say enough about how much I appreciate this uh, this chance to sit down with you folks that's robert raxter from brevard north carolina a coon hunter with a a great store of knowledge to share and robert's been gracious enough to share uh, a lot of that today with us so uh, we thank you robert and uh, if someone asks you where's steve fielder these days tell him he's down there in the mountains of north carolina with robert Uh raxter Raxter, we're going to a squirrel tree with one of those oh, camera fights. <laughs> we'll see you later, Robert. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Bye.